A little over a year ago, the Department of Homeland Security decided to create a new advisory board to try to figure out ways to counter disinformation. It was a really anodyne, kind of wonky policy initiative. But of course it had this Orwellian name, which I, by the way, did not choose. The Orwellian name was the Disinformation Governance Board. And that was Nina Jankowitz, the person who was tapped to lead it. But almost from the moment her appointment was announced, Nina became a lightning rod for a very specific kind of online abuse. So much so that her story is both a cautionary tale and a kind of case study. It became a story less about Nina's suitability to lead a board at DHS than it was about an all-out battle about the idea of disinformation itself, a particularly toxic slice of it reserved specifically for women. Women especially are just expected to grin and bear it. In some ways, the way women used to be expected to grin and bear sexual harassment on the street or in, in the workplace. But we've changed that norm now, and I hope that we can change it for the online environment as well. For her part, Nina has decided not to just grin and bear it. She's taking her experience and fighting back. I'm Dina Temple-Raston, and this is Click Here, a podcast about all things cyber and intelligence. We tell true stories about the people making and breaking our digital world. And today, an up-close look at a disinformation campaign that was as much about gender as it was about qualifications. Part angry feminist, part frustrated karaoke singer, Jankowitz is the last person who should be trusted with distinguishing between fact and fiction. We'll show you how online abuse directed at women has gone way beyond just a couple of mean tweets. Chat GPT, AI machines, satellite, engine ignition, click here, and liftoff. Stay with us. Hello, I'm Adam Fleming from the Global Story podcast from the BBC World Service. We are looking at Lena Khan, the face of the US government's battle to regulate big tech. She's already redefined the way we talk about monopolies. Now she's taking on the likes of Amazon and Meta. But who is she and will she win? The Global Story brings you fresh takes and smart perspectives from BBC journalists around the world. Find us wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Politics has never been stranger or more online, which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. The Disinformation Governance Board wasn't Nina's idea. Ironically, it wasn't even a new idea. It was actually just a continuation of the disinformation work the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA, had started under the Trump administration. You may recall that U.S. intelligence agencies had made clear that Russia had tried to meddle in U.S. elections both in 2016 and 2020. CISA had found smugglers were trying to encourage migrants to cross the border. And adversaries were trying to wind up white supremacists and members of Black Lives Matter just to stir up trouble. Facts were no longer stubborn things. They depended on your point of view. If you were on one side, the 2020 election was stolen. Voting machines were rigged. Votes got lost, despite all the evidence to the contrary. 
If you're on the other, the idea of voting machines flipping a vote seems, well, pretty crazy. So the idea to set up an agency that could figure out how to respond to things like that really wasn't so far-fetched. But somehow Nina, the governance board, and even talking to social media companies to get them to take things down became a battle royal. Immediately, people started making things up about the board, like, watch out, the government is going to start muzzling conservative voices online, and right-wing pundits immediately pounced. I mean, this is Orwellian, it's dystopian, it's un-American. Uh, this is the kind of thing that you see in dictatorships, this Ministry of Truth, this Department of Propaganda that the Biden administration... Nina Jankowicz was at home when the attacks on her began, and they were announced with a tweet. This was in April of 2022. And my husband came in to tell me um, that some conservative influencers had started tweeting about the board and calling it a ministry of truth. Nina didn't want to say exactly who the conservative influencer was because she didn't want to give him more oxygen. I think a little bit like Voldemort gets, uh, gets, gets power every time I mention him, so I try not to do that. Nina knew what would come next. Because after all, I do study disinformation. <laughs> it wouldn't be long before this narrative jumped from the conservative Twitter sphere to Fox News to members of Congress. And indeed... And sure enough, the very next evening... My face was on Tucker Carlson and... So today, to herald the coming of the new Soviet America, the administration announced its own Ministry of Truth. Everyone involved in Joe Biden's new Ministry of Information is a buffoon. They may be evil, but they're also ridiculous. Nina Jankowicz is the most ridiculous of all. This is somebody with so few useful skills that she describes herself in the first words of her own bio as a, quote, internationally recognized expert on disinformation, as if that's a job of some sort. Actually, it is a job. And if you were looking for someone to run this board, you'd probably want someone who speaks Russian and Ukrainian, also Polish, and maybe someone who had spent years studying disinformation, maybe a Fulbright fellow, someone who advised governments around the world about Russian disinformation, someone who perhaps had written a book about all of this, all of which Nina had done. It was as if they weren't actually mad about her qualifications, but instead about something else. This chick is so absurd. Our government's campaign against disinformation is being led by someone who seems to be a cross between Madame Mao and Bette Midler. Nina had tracked a ton of these kinds of gendered disinformation campaigns all over the world. She'd written papers about it. And these operations tended to follow a particular pattern. If you look at Poland, for example, the women who are involved in the abortion movement, um, they've been, you know, labeled sluts and things like this. They're, it's never about their politics. It's always about their moral fiber. And now, Nina said, it was like everything she had studied for years was suddenly happening to her. For the job, She doesn't look like a serious person. A lunatic. That somehow the issue is that attacks can quickly move from online to offline. They can take shape in real life, sometimes in really strange ways. I had had people sending me, you know, empty egg cartons, which is a way that 
online abusers say, oh, you know, you're, you're past your uh, prime, you better work on getting, making babies and things like that, right? So th these are these coded ways of, of abusing women. And that actually is a big part of the problem. Condescending misogynistic online attacks often lead to violence in real life. And Nina and her husband were aware that anything could happen. I don't know. We were, we were so freaked out that we started kind of sleeping with chairs upended under the door like you do with uh, when you're in hostile environment training as a journalist so that people can't push their way into the, into the house. She started doing the things people do when they're scared. I hid behind a mask and a hat and sunglasses, and that was kind of at the the um, advice of someone who I hired to advise me on security, he said that I shouldn't get gas by myself, that I shouldn't go, go out for a cup of coffee at that point because there were people who were actively, you know, trying to harm me. People were even adding Nina's face to the cover of manuals that showed you how to make a bomb and then started posting them on the dark web. As fate would have it, when Nina took the DHS job, she was eight months pregnant. Fox and Friends host Brian Kilmeade actually wondered on air why President Biden would give a pregnant woman such an important job. And even his co-host was a little taken aback. So I'm not sure how you get a job and then you just, you can't do a job for three months. Well, mm. I'll, I'll defend her on that one, Brian. Yeah. She, she has the right to have a baby and have maternity leave. No, I know, and look, plenty of men are tapped for high-level government posts whose resumes are a lot thinner than Nina's. And they never get this kind of abuse. Or, if they do, it just doesn't seem to stick and escalate in the way it does with women. If I had been an older white man, I think I would have just been so much less attractive to them uh, as a target. But The, fact the incessant abuse went on for weeks. You know, Fox News took shots at Nina all day long, and then social media kept it going all night. And where was DHS and the Biden administration while all this was going on? I think they, they really did not know what to do with this level of vitriol. And I think there was no playbook for, for what to do to support me, both you know, morally but also physically. So Nina was on her own. And it isn't so surprising after weeks of blistering attacks that Nina decided to step down from the board. So the governance board never actually met. And in fact, DHS decided to shut it down altogether shortly after Nina resigned. But the abuse continued, even after she gave them what they seemed to have wanted. I remember after I resigned and went on MSNBC on Chris Hayes the night I resigned. This morning, Nina Jankowitz submitted her resignation. Tonight, she joins me for her first television interview. Uh, Somebody wrote, uh, I love how defeated she looks. And I'm like, I don't look defeated. I just look like I'm 38 weeks pregnant. Then the New York Times did a piece on Nina, and they sent a photographer. She had given birth just two weeks before. I think I looked damn good for two weeks postpartum, but I had, you know, my, my bust was quite significant at that point, let's just say. And, and there were all these men online commenting on the size of my chest. It was just like, can you not see the person here rather than just seeing me as a piece of meat? When we return... Nina Jankowitz fights back. Board is suing Fox News. That is Nina Jankowitz, who the New York Times described. And how she's trying to hold the people who targeted her to account. Stay with us. Blockchain, NFTs, AI. What does this mean for you and me? 
I'm Sherelle Dorsey, host of the TED Tech Podcast, where we bring you the latest innovations and biggest ideas in tech. Tech is evolving fast and it affects our lives, from the metaverse to the watches on our wrists. You'll learn why people in AI make good business partners, about our future self-driving robo-taxi, what the next generation of Siri, Alexa, Google looks like, and a lot more. Find TED Tech on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Online harassment doesn't have a simple definition, just a baggy description about using information and communication technologies to cause harm to someone. A UN survey of 51 countries revealed that 38% of women had personally experienced online harassment, but only one in four bothered to report it. Nina Jankowitz wasn't going to be one of those people who quietly left the field. I think Fox and other networks that um, use the power of their their corporate heft to ruin people's lives for profit need to be aware that there can be consequences, even if it's just like a fly in the ointment for a little while. She filed the lawsuit about a year after she resigned as the executive director of that disinformation governance board. Her lawyers say over the course of eight months in 2022, Fox News talked about Nina more than 300 times. They said the attacks were aimed at denigrating her character and professional reputation. The suit singles out Tucker Carlson as one of Nina's most vociferous critics, and it cites Laura Ingram and Sean Hannity as piling on. And the case has echoes of another recent defamation lawsuit against the network, that of Dominion Voting Systems. Dominion is one of the largest providers of voting machines in the United States, and it accused Fox hosts, executives, and guests of defaming them by spinning up wild conspiracy theories about how its machines switched votes cast for then-President Donald Trump to President Biden. And we know how that ended up. This historic settlement of the $1.6 billion defamation case against Fox News, accused of knowingly... That happened just this past April. Nina's case was filed in the very same Superior Court. And her allegations aren't too different from Dominion's. She says she was falsely portrayed as a player in an Orwellian effort to control the speech of ordinary Americans. They said I was going to have authority to decide what was true or false online. Um, Not only did I not have any authority, the board didn't have any authority to uh, decide what was true or false online and certainly had no law enforcement or operational authority to pursue any of that. The lawsuit says that while Nina resigned after weeks of criticism, Fox hosts and guests claimed she'd been fired. Nina says she'd actually been offered other roles in the department, but she chose to leave, among other reasons, to protect her family. Because I felt that I could do more and better work that had more impact outside of government, given what I had seen in that 10 weeks. The lawsuit is also alleging that Fox had reckless disregard for the truth when it reported that Nina wanted the power to edit people's tweets. Which, on the face of it, is weird because how would she actually be able to do that? Still, to this day, I'll reply sometimes to trolls on Twitter who think I want to edit people's tweets. And I'm like, hi, you've been lied to. It's just like, it's ridiculous. Would you get special admin privileges to go in and retype people's tweets? I don't know. It doesn't. It, that's the thing. It's so absurd. It doesn't even make sense. But they still ran with it.
Fox did not respond to ClickHere's numerous requests for comment. It has, though, filed for the case to be dismissed. But the network's decision to settle with Dominion back in April suggests that there is a way to win a defamation case against the network if it is spewing disinformation. As part of the discovery in the voting machines case, Fox had to produce communications that showed that hosts and executives were saying things about Dominion voting systems that they knew not to be true. And that proved to be a critical part of the case against them. Nina says that could happen in her case as well. She doesn't think they actually believed all the horrible things they were saying about her. And I don't know if Fox will want to go through the whole discovery process again um, because it was really bad for them last time and who knows what we'll uncover. Right. Like emails, you mean? Emails, text messages. I really want to get inside the heads of the Chiron writers. Like, what are they thinking to make them write the crazy stuff that they do? And Nina says even if Fox succeeds in getting some sort of summary judgment or dismissal, trying to hold them to account was the right thing to do. She wants people to know that it isn't just corporations that can win judgments against a network. Regular people can, too. Um, and at the very least, you know, that my side of the story, complete with, like, gruesome detail, is out in the form of legal briefs that anybody can read whatever they want. And the way that fight against disinformation has developed since the campaign against Nina has a familiar ring. Missouri and Louisiana attorney generals sued Biden administration officials, saying they were colluding with social media platforms to censor conservatives. Their lawsuit named specific individuals who all have one thing in common. It's not a coincidence, Dina, that the primary lead researchers who are called out in that court case and who have been the subject of Twitter files conspiracy theories are also women. Weeks after the initial ruling, a three-judge panel reversed the lower court and said it would pause their restrictions on administration officials talking to social media companies about misinformation. This is Click Here. Nora Al-Jazawi is a researcher we spoke to about a year ago. She told us about high-tech despotism. She'd been an activist in Syria, and when she left, the Assad regime continued to harass her in ways big and small. There is this everyday fear and anxiety of being targeted. Transnational repression in the form of spyware on a telephone, or just the act of planting seeds of doubt about Nora herself. Click here, Sean Powers explains. A couple of years ago, Nora Al-Jazawi and her husband applied for residency in Canada. Nora had been an activist in Syria, and she was imprisoned and tortured by the Assad regime. She eventually ended up in Canada in hopes of finding some peace of mind and safety. Like, my story is very complicated because in the past, before coming to Canada, I was targeted by at least three state actors, uh, Syria, Iran, and Russia. She was targeted because of her activism against Assad. The express visa process in Canada typically takes six months. But instead for Nora, three years went by without a word. Three years! And then this past January, Nora and her husband got a cryptic email from the Canadian Immigration Service. They wanted her to address some S-34 concerns. 
Now, S-34 is part of the Immigration Act that relates to national security. Nora immediately wondered if she'd become a victim of some kind of misinformation campaign. And, you know, since there's no uh, transparency, that means everything could be a possibility. Nora had seen this before. It was back in 2016. She was traveling in Europe, and Interpol flagged her passport. And then through some networks, I found the information that the uh, Russian government deported my passport with the number of my flight from Istanbul to that European country, saying, yeah, the holder of this passport uh, is uh, holding like a fake passport, and this fake passport uh, was issued by ISIS. It didn't matter that she had no connection to ISIS. The insinuation was a lie. But the information did what it was supposed to do. Nora was interrogated at the airport, delayed seven hours. So you can imagine that when the Canadian Immigration Service asked her to show up for an interview at a deportation facility near the airport, she was a little bit rattled. And so were her colleagues at the Citizen Lab. This is a digital rights group made up of researchers at the University of Toronto. So uh, to remind everybody, Noor is somebody who was detained, effectively kidnapped, and tortured in, in a gruesome fashion. This is Ron Debert, the, the Citizen Lab's executive director. Out. Why on earth would you hold a meeting about someone's file at such a location? Somebody who's been through what she's been through. It's uh, in incredibly insensitive, to say the least. We asked the Canadian Immigration Service about this, and they told us they wouldn't comment on individual cases. And here's the thing. Nora's visa might still have been in doubt had the news media not gotten wind of her story. Canadian immigration officials flagged Al-Jazawi as a national security risk. She doesn't know why. To get answers, her lawyer is suing the government in federal court. What exactly are the specifics? People were writing letters to the Prime Minister, to the Minister of Immigration, to the Foreign Affairs Minister, saying, you know, the equivalent of WTF, you know, what's going on here? And then, a few weeks ago... Yes, it's official. <laughs> Nora and her husband were given permanent residency in Canada, no crazy interview at the deportation center, no additional information, just a magical, completely untransparent, okay, you can stay. All of this felt a lot like that ISIS passport episode she experienced a few years ago. I assume, so I have my own theory about the possibility of the involvement uh, or the intervention of a government. Uh, and that's like using whether like what's similar to what's called in the U.S. the poison pen. A poison pen. Some little hint from someone or some government that Nora somehow posed a threat. That could have been enough to spark all of this. And Nora doesn't know for sure who it was. And the Canadians, for their part, aren't telling her. But it was a small disinformation campaign that could have had tremendous consequences. I'm Sean Powers, and this is Click Here.
Here are some of the top cyber and intelligence headlines of the past week. The secret society and hacking crew Cult of the Dead Cow has some big plans for social media. According to the Washington Post, they will reveal details of a new framework for encrypting social media at the DEFCON Security Conference in Las Vegas this week. They've created something called Valid, which will allow companies to provide encrypted versions of their apps to offer users more privacy. The challenge will be in persuading programmers and engineers to design apps that will be compatible with it. Because if you can't collect detailed information from users, it makes it hard to distribute targeted ad or pitch a product to them specifically. Microsoft revealed this week that state-backed hackers linked to Russia carried out highly targeted phishing attacks through the company's Teams platform. The hackers used previously compromised Microsoft 365 accounts owned by small businesses to create some domains that were then used to dupe their targets into Microsoft Teams messages. The hackers are believed to be part of a group widely known as Cozy Bear, which U.S. officials say is part of Russia's foreign intelligence service, known as the SVR. Cozy Bear is thought to have been behind the SolarWinds hack and the 2016 breach of the Democratic National Committee. And finally, cyber attacks on governments and public entities worldwide surged by 40% from March to May of this year compared with the first quarter of the year. That's according to researchers at the cybersecurity firm BlackBerry. During this period, researchers identified more than 55,000 attacks carried out by nation-state and financially motivated hackers. In the U.S., the numbers were driven by incidents involving city and state government hacks, including the cities of Oakland, California, and Dallas, Texas. In Europe, Poland was a popular target, especially among Russian-linked hackers. In March, for example, they targeted the country's tax service website. The report said threat actors mostly used inexpensive and easily accessible malware to launch their attacks. I'm Dina Templerest. I'm the executive producer and host of the show. Sean Powers is our senior producer and marketing director. Will Jarvis is our producer. And Sarah Wyman is our writer-reporter. Our editing team is led by Karen Duffin and Lou Wolkowski. Darren Ancrum does our fact-checking. And our theme and original music compositions are by Ben Levingston. We also use music from Blue Dot Sessions. And we'd love to hear from you. Please leave us a review and rating wherever you get your podcasts, or send us an email at clickhere at recordedfuture.com. Check out our website with details about our shows and our whole show catalog at clickhereshow.com. That's a wrap for this week. I'm Dina Templerest. We'll be back on Tuesday. Looking for more of the cybersecurity and intelligence coverage you get on Click Here? Then check out our sister publication, The Record, from Recorded Future News. You'll get breaking cyber news from reporters in New York, Washington, London, and Kiev, among others. And you'll see for yourself why it attracts hundreds of thousands of page views every month. Just go to the record.media.